You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 35 West Shelton Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. This is uh, the third week in our summer series of exploring the stories of women in the Bible, women whose stories have often been marginalized um, and um, experienced oppression. Through them and their faith and their stories, we get to know a God who sees them and sees us, and uh, we, we can find our place in the story of God relating to humanity in a fuller way than without them. So that's why we're focusing on this, this summer, and Kathleen um, brings us her gifts today. So Kathleen, come on up. Hi. So today we're looking at the story of Hagar. Thank you. And the story of Sarai. Uh, Hagar was a slave in the household of Abram and Sarai, who would later uh, come to be named Abraham and Sarah. Both Hagar and Sarai encountered trauma in these stories, and they responded to it in very different ways. God, too, responded to these two women very differently. Now, Sarai... This is, this is from Genesis now. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Dolores Williams, a womanist theologist, wrote in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, Hagar became the first female in the Bible to liberate herself from oppressive power structures. Though the law prescribes harsh punishment for runaway slaves, she takes the risk rather than endure more brutal treatment by Sarai. The harshness of the force Sarai exerts upon Hagar is indicated in the passage by the verb, which is the same verb used in Exodus to indicate the suffering experience of all the Hebrews when they were slaves in Egypt. So back to the text from Genesis. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. 
and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. God calls Hagar by name, whereas throughout the rest of the text, neither Sarai nor Abram uses the name Hagar. They just call her Sarai's Egyptian slave. God sees her and calls her by name, and she names God, you are the God who sees me. God blesses Hagar with a blessing that directly echoes the blessings God gave Abram. The words to Abram are, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. And again, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And to Hagar, her wor- uh, to Hagar the words were, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Feminist Hebrew biblical scholar Joanne Hackett says that the blessing God gives Hagar is language typical in the Genesis narrative of what is usually called the promise of the patriarchs, a divine promise of descendants and often land. The surprising thing here, however, is that the promise is made to a woman. This is the only case in Genesis where this promise is given to a woman rather than a patriarch. Wow. And on top of that, God, or Hagar has named God. Hagar is the only person in the Hebrew Bible who gives God a name. And the name she gives God is about God's relationship to her. Full stop. You are the God who sees me. Hagar does as God says by going back to Sarai and submitting herself. Nothing in the text says this, but I read this as Hagar trusting God that life with Sarai will be a better choice than death, that life with Sarai will allow Hagar to live long enough to see the promise of the patriarchs, or in this case, the matriarch, come true for her. God changes Abram and Sarai's names to Abraham and Sarah, and then we get the next part of the Hagar story. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking, And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, so that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she, set, she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. 
Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. In both this passage and the earlier one, Hagar recognizes the trauma and gives voice to it. In chapter 16, she did this in her response when God asked her where she's going. In chapter 21, she sobbed. There are so many traumas that she does not name. Being enslaved, being taken from her land and her culture, the forced pregnancy. But she gives voice to some of the trauma and God listens. Resma Menachem talks in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, about clean pain and dirty pain. Clean pain, he says, is about choosing integrity over fear. It is about letting go of what is familiar but harmful, finding the best parts of yourself and making a leap with no guarantee of safety or praise. One of the steps for moving through clean pain so you can release the trauma requires you to accept the discomfort and notice when it changes instead of trying to flee from it. Hagar is choosing integrity over fear in so many ways. She absolutely makes a leap with no guarantee of safety. When God asks her what's going on, she's honest. Resma Menachem goes on to say, when we heal our own trauma, individually and collectively, we don't just heal our bodies. By refusing to pass on the trauma we inherited, we help heal the world. And that is powerful and hopeful. Let's shift over to Sarai's story now. Given what you've heard so far, Sarai is not smelling like a rose. Let's hear a little bit about what's behind that. Sarai was named Sarai when she was born. She was Terah's daughter. Abram, the man who married her, was Terah's son. They had different mothers, but the same father. That doesn't get mentioned at first, though, but they mention right away that Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. The chapter goes on to describe Abram's travels. We'll pick it back up in verse 9. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I may be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful. Pharaoh's uh, officials praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So then, Pharaoh summoned Abram to figure out what was going on and sent Abram away with all of the stuff that he had just given Abram. So, Sarai is a woman who was transferred as property through a marriage contract to her half-brother Abram, taken away from the land that she knew, taken away from the next place she was settled, blamed for being barren, blamed for being so beautiful that it put Abram's life in danger, told to lie to the Egyptians, 
taken as Pharaoh's wife, and then Abram makes bank as a result. The scripture doesn't say this, but I think it's safe to say that this was not by Sarai's choice. Sometimes we're encouraged not to put our current day values onto ancient stories, but I'd like you to consider that even if many of these things would have seemed normal in the society at that time, it was still traumatic. It's after all of this happens that Sarai offers her Egyptian slave to Abram, then mistreats Hagar so badly. Next in Sarai's story is when God changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. And while God's talking to Abraham, says, I will bless Sarah and surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. They are then visited by three strangers who reiterate that Sarah will have a son. When Sarah hears this, she laughs. When the, the, and then this is uh, from Genesis. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Notice how different this is from how God interacts with Hagar. With Hagar, God addresses Hagar directly by name. With Sarah, God asks Abraham about it. And notice Sarah's response. She lies. Also very different from Hagar. But given the circumstances, how could it not be a different response? It's like the difference between when your mom sits down on the couch next to you and puts her arm around you and says, what's wrong, honey? Compared to the jaded, bitter fourth grade teacher who swivels around and says, who, who threw that spitball? Like, who's gonna own up to that? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a different situation and a different response. From here, we get the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Lot, his family, and then Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev. For a while, he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, or Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, took Sarah, sent for Sarah and took her. <sighs> Now in this case, God intervened and Abimelech did not touch Sarah. When Abimelech asks Abraham why he acted this way, Abraham answered that it was because he was afraid that they would kill him because of her. And besides, she really is his sister. <sighs> then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live where you would like. And then it's the very next chapter after this, when we get the part of Hagar's story, where Sarah tells Abraham to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah does not get to tell her story. God talks about her, not to her. These things don't excuse what Sarah did. But it helps us understand this as a nuanced story with pieces that intertwine and affect each other. There is great power in telling your story and being fully heard. It's not enough. We need to do more than talk and listen. But it's an essential part of healing from trauma, and it's an essential part of being human.
Going back to Resma Menachem and his descriptions of clean pain and dirty pain, he says, in comparison with clean pain, the alternative paths of avoidance, blame, and denial are paved with dirty pain. When people respond from their most wounded parts and choose dirty pain, they only create more of it, both for themselves and for other people. Think of how many times and ways people tell their stories as part of a process of healing, repenting, restoring relationships, making amends, strengthening bonds of friendships. Going to confession, 12-step programs, heck, StoryCorps on NPR. So I have, um, if any of this, we've, we've had, I've been talking through a lot of different traumas, and many of us have experienced traumas big and small in our own lives. And if any of what we're talking about here today or during Talkback brings up any significant trauma for you, I urge you to seek out a trauma counselor. These are not things that we're meant to handle alone, and some traumas really call for a trained healer who can do this right. It's too much to talk out with a friend or with yourself. Circle values emotional and psychological health and has a practice of providing financial aid for therapy. So you can ask Julie or your cell leader if this is something that you need. And please keep in mind that it will honor all of us to walk with you, and it will be a privilege to provide assistance if that is something that you need. I have a set of questions that I'm going to read through, and then let's settle into some silence and sit with these questions. I'll let you know when we start the talk back, a time when we welcome reflections from anyone here and listen to each other deeply. So the first set of questions have to do with ourselves and the set, second set of questions have to do with us as a community. So I'll read them. Don't try to remember all of them. Just see what kind of sticks for you and grab onto that and let that kind of you know, work in you and let, it, let you tumble it around. What does this mean for you in your own life? Where are you in this story? Are you holding on to a story that you need to tell? Do you have a gift for listening deeply? What's been your history of sitting with discomfort or trying to flee from it? What does this mean for our life in community? Whose stories do we make room to hear? Whose stories are shut down? How do we engage tenderly with each other to strengthen our bonds with each other? Are we as a church moving through clean pain or choosing dirty pain? What would it look like to hold ourselves and each other lovingly accountable for dirty pain. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.com.